Hello and welcome to Beyond Organic Wine. I'm Adam Huss coming to you from rainy California. Thanks so much for listening. And I haven't mentioned this in a while, but thank you especially to those of you who support this podcast by subscribing to our Patreon. I am humbled and inspired by your support, and it is literally what makes this podcast possible, so thank you. If you would like to support this podcast in a sustaining way, the link to our Patreon is in the show notes for every episode, including this one. And maybe you're a regular listener, but you only think that an average of one out of five of these episodes are worth supporting. Well, then maybe a subscription wouldn't be the thing for you, but you can still make a donation for that one episode out of five whenever it occurs and moves you and gives you some worthwhile resources, inspiration, and joy. Just go to beyondorganicwine.com and hit the support page, and you can donate there without getting tied into a monthly subscription. Okay, (laughs) I'm again thrilled to say that the sponsor for this episode is Piscinus Ranch and Learning Center. Piscinus Ranch is a regenerative ranch and global leader in the regenerative viticulture movement and in just regenerative viticulture. I'll be here through the growing season. This is where I'm working this growing season, helping an incredible group of vagrants, vagabonds, and victims of viticultural vicissitudes take care of one of the most special vineyards in the world. Designed and managed by Kelly Mulville to enable year-round grazing of sheep from its inception and to incorporate and demonstrate the incredible benefits of regenerative viticulture. And the best part of this is that the folks here want to share what they're learning with you. So this March 28th and 29th, the ranch is holding the first, hopefully annual, regenerative viticulture immersion on site. There aren't many educational resources out there for regenerative viticulture, and especially of this quality. And I just think this is something special. I'm really happy to share this with you. I'm glad I'm going to be part of it. I hope to see you here. Kelly and Rob Rutherford are the holistic educators and facilitators of the immersion and will lead us through two days packed with content and interaction, both indoors and in the vineyard. This is relevant to everyone, whether you live in a city and just love wine or live in the middle of nowhere, growing and making wine all day long. We believe the power in our gatherings here at the ranch are not just about the presentations by the quote-unquote experts. I use that because of what I'm going to say next. Um, but all all the people here sharing, connecting, participating in the learning and getting to experience some deeply meaningful fun. As Kelly says, and the reason I used quotes around expert, the only expert in this realm is the inherent wisdom of the natural world. We're all on this journey of learning and exploring together, and, and that's the attitude of the folks here. And this could be a turning point for you. You can learn more and register at piscinuslearning.org. Let me spell Piscinus for you. It's P-A-I-C-I-N-E-S. That's piscinuslearning.org. I hope to see you here this March 28th and 29th. And don't forget to bring a bottle of something special that's regenerative and whiny <laughs> to share. Not to hoard for yourself, but to share because I volunteered to host a wine tasting that Thursday night, the 28th. And we will hopefully also get to taste some of the wines made here in the vineyard. I mean, made from the vineyard, not in the vineyard. That would be great. We'll be out there making wine. Anyway, never mind. My guests for this episode are Kelly Allen and Andrew Napier of Artemisia Farm in Virginia. I started looking into them a few months ago, and I became impressed with the values behind their wine project. But as I continued to follow along with their activities, I became at first impressed and then daunted, maybe a bit jealous, and at how many different amazing things they're doing. 
And then I learned more and more, and now I'm just scared of them because I think they must have a deal with the devil to afford them more hours in a day than normal mortals. This episode is a little long relative to what I'm not sure considering that I regularly publish episodes over two hours and it's less than that at least it was before I wrote this incredibly long intro but anyway it's their fault for being so busy and interesting and of course my curious mind wanted to know all about all of it they are hybrid grape growers and winemakers aromatized winemakers makers of wine made with Native American fruits besides grapes writers and publishers, wine fair organizers, farmers who do regular CSA, foragers, entrepreneurs, and of course, heavy methamphetamine users, because I mean, really, how else could they do all of this other stuff? Just kidding. They do all this stuff with lots of passion, but zero hard drugs. As far as I know. I mean, we didn't talk about that. I'm guessing. But more than that, they are incredibly thoughtful about everything that they do, and they are really enjoyable to talk to, which never hurts. And one more important thing uh, that is worth mentioning, Kelly and Andrew use lots of wild fruits and ingredients, as well as some permaculture farmed fruits. So things that are far beyond organic. And they also use some other fruits that are farmed organically, maybe not certified, but with organic practices. Uh, But they choose not to farm their hybrid grapes organically. This is an intentional choice that they make because they believe it is more ecological choice in their context. Virginia, for those of you who aren't familiar, is a subtropical climate that also has cold winters, crazily enough. Their growing season is hot, sticky, humid, wet, and the perfect conditions for every grape, fungal, and insect pest. In these conditions, many people in Virginia are actually trying to grow vinifera. To do this often takes weekly applications of chemical sprays, as many as 15 to 25 conventional sprays in a growing season. That is frankly insane and it's tantamount to poisoning our environment. But organic sprays, which are less effective, often need to be applied at least as frequently in Virginia, that is weekly, even when using resilient hybrid grapes, which means even with hybrid grapes, you are getting out there once a week, and there's a lot of substance buildup, compaction, and fossil fuel use. Meanwhile, Kelly and Andrew can spray their hybrids once per month, and are learning how to manage their vineyard so that they can do even less. I'm not saying what's right or wrong here. I'm just saying that if you're trying to grow grapes in the most ecological way in your context, I think an organic label sometimes doesn't give you enough information, and there are likely compromises to any path you take. However, Kelly and Andrew and I all agree that growing vinifera in Virginia is not only foolish, it's irresponsible, and we aren't afraid to piss some people off by saying that. At the end of this episode, I asked Kelly and Andrew a question that I plan to incorporate in all of my future episodes, I ask them to play devil's advocate with themselves and ask the big question that is the strongest argument against what they're doing. More and more, I want to engage with these kinds of questions rather than just create an echo chamber for all the things that we know are great about any given approach to wine. I don't want this podcast to be a sales pitch. I want it to be a real conversation and a safe space to debate, to challenge, to learn, and to grow. And all that takes questioning our most fervently held beliefs and values in an open and honest way. A huge thanks to Kelly and Andrew for embracing that and asking some hard questions of themselves. And stay tuned to the end. I have some closing thoughts. I don't want to give away what they talk about and what they ask of themselves, but As I've thought more about it, I had some thoughts that I'll add after the episode. So stay tuned and enjoy. Kelly and Andrew, welcome. Thank you. Excited (laughs) to be here. Awesome. Um, 
what are your what is your project and i mean how do you incorporate everything that you do in the time that a normal human being is given on this earth (laughs) (laughs) this is my first and most important question (laughs) yeah it's a great question i think we ask ourselves that question uh every day (laughs) and i think the word project is is a very apt one um you know, we have a small farm uh, with a, a CSA that delivers vegetables to people. Um, it's collaborative. Uh, we are a micro winery uh, and we make what we call a botanical wine, uh, but uh, some people might call aromatized wine in addition to some other creative ferments that we're exploring. We do cocktail bitters. Uh, we do an annual magazine. It's, uh, it's a lot. We have a small nonprofit that we run. In terms of fitting it into the normal human spectrum, I'm not totally sure how we've done that. I think yeah. there's been a trade uh, of sanity to to labor at hand. Uh, I, I would say we're still trying to figure that out. Um, <laughs> yeah, we are um, in our our fourth year um, now of this, and are are still trying to find that balance that we would like to see. Um, and yeah, I think that uh, Kelly and I both have the mindset that. Um, balance uh, comes out of a, a sense of st- sustainability and um, we're working mm-hmm. on trying to make that happen for ourselves in addition to all the, the aspects of our project. Yeah, I love that. Well, and do you guys have any kids at all? No kids, no pets. That's that's uh, super our helpful. Our work is our child, yeah. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say that's super helpful, I imagine. Um, and you just I brought up the thing. Say again? And, I don't think you can manage more. Right. <laughs> um, where are you in the world? Wait, you're it, please, if you could say the name of your farm project. Sure. Uh, we are Artemisia Farm and Vineyard. Artemisia. Okay. Cool. I just wanted to make sure I didn't yeah, pronounce Artemisia it wrong. Artemisia is the uh, uh, genus for wormwood, um, which is where we pulled the name from. Um, but I think we both really love that it has a, a both a cultivated and wild. Uh, feeling to it and that that fits our approach <laughs> quite a bit artemisia is the is the family name the genus name of for wormwood yes mm-hmm. oh wild is it from artemis i imagine greek i believe so but i'm I'm not entirely sure what the total connection is there yet <laughs> we probably huh. yeah, i don't know the etymology of the word yeah. I, 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 are you guys big absinthe fans I, I love absinthe. <laughs> nice, yeah. I mean, this has to do with like aromatized wines, right? Where we're dipping yeah, we're, we're in that a little bit. It is. It's it's the primary bittering agent in in uh, vermouth. Uh, so there you go. We use quite a bit of it. It also grows so easily here. So uh, it's a plant that we just like to work with. Really, it's pretty. Is it? It's just prevalent there. Where um, are you, by the way? <laughs> yeah, that's a good. Yeah. Uh, so we are in uh, Bentonville, Virginia, which is about an hour due west from Washington D.C. Um, in the Shenandoah Valley, in, up in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. It's a good location, I imagine, close to the that urban population. Yes, I think we are we are situated pretty well in that you know I, we have a, a strong customer base in that that urban center, but we are removed enough that we can still be very rural and. I think we both appreciate the the ability to be engaged in both sides of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, what are I mean, Virginia is is um, has a special place for me. I mean, I have family there. I'm from near there, and I also know how difficult it can be in terms of climate there. What do you guys have to deal with in terms of challenges to farming? 
Absolutely. This is such a such a huge question right now in Virginia and just in the mid-Atlantic. Um, you know, our region, <clears throat> even where we are up in the mountains, it's classified as subtropical. Um, so yeah. it's it's very humid. We have a lot of humidity. We have very hot summers. Uh, we also have very cold winters uh, comparatively to other more humid climates. Um, and we have tropical areas. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and we have a lot of um, invasive non-native insect pests that have been brought in. So, you know, and on top of that, we have resistant uh, mildew pressures. So we have a, an environment that is conducive to mildew. Um, and then we have resistant mildew pressures because um, our local agricultural climate has consistently treated and sprayed to the point of helping to breed those resistant diseases. And then we have really powerful pests, uh, the Japanese beetle and now uh, the spotted lanternfly that really have no native predators that are just decimating crops and really causing a lot of havoc. So I, I would say that um, overall, you know, it's a very difficult area to grow from that angle. Um, but it's also a really lovely area. It's a fertile area. The soil is often very workable. There's plentiful rain. There's a lot of sun. Uh, so, it, you know, it's, it's both bountiful and challenging. Yeah, I actually know somebody who's breeding there and he's like talking about the spotted lanternfly and he's like, um, it, it makes it makes you wish for leaf hoppers. It's so bad. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It hasn't hit our vineyard site yet. And our vineyard site is young, so um, that's part of it perhaps, but um, we're quite we're quite worried about it. And, uh, I'm sure we can talk more about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and before we jump into more of, you know, you know, your, your farming and your winemaking and everything. Um, I just wanted to ask, you have written a book of poems called Britannomyces, Kelly. Is oh, that no. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> that's correct. Is this out there where some somebody can read it? Uh, yes, it is, I believe, still available. It was published uh, via Finishing Line Press. Uh, it is a collection of assorted poems from um, my work in wine and uh, a short a short stint living out in the Southwest. Uh, so uh, yeah, Finishing Line Press um, is probably your best option. Okay. Great. Oh, it's also and available on Etsy. I should mention that. So it's on, it's on Etsy um, under Corner Poems. You can find it there. Amazing. Okay. Why the title? Was that oh, a poem? I believe it is. It's been a long time since I read the book. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is a poem. Um, but I think more to the point, I this will sound awful and wine people will be turned off, but I actually feel a little bit of kinship with uh, the Britannomyces microbe. I, I think it shows tenacity. It is um, it is the thing that keeps coming back. It is very much like a weed in the winery. And in many ways, I feel a lot of kinship with that weed. You know, in a lot of ways, I, I haven't really fit the winery production profile to a T and there's been friction generated from that um, as I've tried to find my own space in wine. And so I, I feel like, uh, like I'm a little bit of a Britannomyces situation. Just, I, I just won't go away. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the analogy with the weed. I mean, even the way that you control for Britannomyces is like, is actually the way that you would control most effectively for weeds, which is like not trying to continually pull them up and eradicate them and clear the land, which just makes them stronger and breed more, you know, it, it's essentially like they're filling a niche in wine and wineries. And if you eliminate that niche or reduce the niche by having more micro microbial diversity, more microbial probiotic life going on, you actually keep it at bay. Like it's sort of like if you clear a spot in your yard, weeds are going to grow. Whereas if you plant a cover crop there, they will outcompete 
the weeds mm-hmm. for the most part and keep the weeds at bay. You know, it's that kind of idea. Um, and that, I don't know. That's very cool. Anyway, <laughs> great analogy. <laughs> you must be a poet. Uh, <laughs> uh, you also, I mean, you, you brought up Andrew sustainability and I know Kelly that you studied sustainable ag. Is that right? That's right. Mm-hmm. And both of you obviously care about that in your winery or, you know, from what I little know about you and, and I just, what does that mean for you? Like, how would you define that to sustainability and, you know, both from farming and business standpoints, but, and specific to your context, but also bigger picture thoughts about sustainability. Um, and do you, do you, you know, how do you, I know I'm asking like 10 questions, so, (laughs) um, but also, you know, how do you, how would you compare and contrast that to regenerative farming, for example, or regenerative winery business? Hmm. Lots. Yeah. Lots of questions. There are a lot, a lot to dig into. Um, I think, I think I can speak a little to the ecological side. Um, I think that, you know, sustainability, it's very easy to slot sustainability into, you know, greater buzzwords like organic, biodynamic, permaculture, and all of those are great tools in a toolbox. Um, But sometimes they're not necessarily the most sustainable option ecologically um, or, you know, or in the winery, depending on where you're coming from. So I think, you know, if we think about sustainability um, on the ecological side, the environmental side as sort of a, a continuation of, um, then I think, you know, it's it's very tolerable to engage with a more integrated, you know, I, I, integrated sort of management approach that really prioritizes um, organic approaches, natural pr- uh, approaches as much as possible with more conventional things in your back pocket. And I think that you know, this really takes, quite frankly, an understanding of science, which I wish we had more of. Um, so you can really accurately assess everything you're working with and make informed decisions uh, with the end goal of being as hands-off as possible. You know, you want to take a systems approach that really cares for itself and removes human management as much as possible. That's sort of where I come from. So as opposed to, a, you know, forcing an organic situation that requires an intensive amount of, of application or production. You know, I think environmental sustainability doesn't just start with what you put on a thing or how you manage your immediate space, it also takes into account, you know, the shipping costs and the production costs and the ingredients used to make what you're working with. And a lot of organic and biodynamic practitioners or or adjacent of don't necessarily take those things into account. So I think, you know, I really take a systems view and a a total view um, to what we do. And it's all very much rooted in science as much as possible. Yeah, and I I think I would add to that that I think we take that systems view not just on the farm and in the vineyard, but uh, zoom out to what we consider our our local food web through to our um, role in uh, what it means to engage with agriculture and and wine in particular, and uh, that sustainability um, has a very strong cultural element to it where. I feel like you need to be connecting to, to the people who are actually doing the consuming and the, and the people who are participating um, uh, in the system in order to make sure that that continues and continues further um, into the future. Uh, you know, I think, you know, it's easy just to get a certification and put a label on something, but if people aren't taking that step to really understand why something is important or connect with the people who are actually doing it, then it never leaves the grocery store shelf. You know, and I think it's really important uh, for sustainability to to have a more holistic uh, 
minds uh, uh, space in in our larger culture. Sure. And I think that's one thing we're really trying to to push forward, um, both with our wines and and with our, our vegetable CSA. I think it, that that's a big part of what we're doing. Yeah, sustainability as a practice, you know, as a, as a life way, not just a thing that you can purchase and uh, uh, lot over your ego. <laughs> Something that you actually do. It sounds pretty nuanced. I mean, it sounds like it takes thought. It sounds like it takes, um, like, I'm, I'm trying to, like, like what is, what am I trying to think of? the What kind of training is it when you, ha- like, if you're a, a doctor, you have to continually do, like, a certain amount of hours of ongoing training throughout your career to keep your license. Do you know what I'm talking about, what that's Con- called? Continuing education? Continuing education. Yeah, it sounds like this is something that would fall into that where it's like this is you don't just get it and you know what it is it you have to continue to you know read the papers study what's happening like study what best practices are learn and and actually then apply them to specific instances which are going to be different depending on where you are in your specific context is that am i seeing that in a way that you guys see that that, that's exactly how I see it. Um, Absolutely. And I think I would just add that sometimes that means relearning and re- reconsidering something that maybe you felt like was settled previously. Um, you know, I think that, the, that it's a continuing evolution. A word that I often use um, that might sound a little bit heavy in this context is, is responsibility. You know, when, when we have responsibility over something, and we do, you know, mm-hmm. we have responsibility over our planet and for each other as a community, you know, when you are responsible for a thing, you are constantly looking out for it. You're constantly being mindful and aware of it. And, and you're constantly trying to find new ways to to care for it. And that that should propel one to continually learn and grow and continue to find new ways to be involved. That's how we, we exhibit responsibility in other contexts. So I think just really taking to heart what sustainability means, that's, that's the practice of it. Yeah, you know, this makes me think of something that we... We, we spoke about earlier offline, um, this idea of responsibility. How, I mean, is that something that you see that you can generate with your wine? In, uh, in what context? Uh, sorry, I should, I should give you more. I'm of sorry. What I'm thinking. No, no, you, you, I've, you, you guys had a really beautiful idea of, of helping people fall in love with the land they that the wine comes from and that that is where the sense of responsibility should come from is this reconnection and re um just sort of that that reconnection and re re learning to love the land um does that trigger (laughs) does that trigger a memory of the conversation that i'm referring to yeah yes absolutely and i think that um uh another way to put that perhaps is that um Joy and play have to be part of um, sustain, uh, a sustainable mindset. Um, people need to uh, have fun and uh, enjoy what, what they are consuming. Uh, they need to um, feel like that they are, have a connection to it and have um, some sort of resonance that will allow them to then therefore connect to the land, connect to um, the larger um, ecological picture. And that's going to then create this sense of responsibility that that's something they want to caretake um, and, and, and help sustain. And that's, that's how sustainability will work um, on a larger cultural level. Um, you, you need that piece of joy and that, 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 that play. Yeah. I, I think, you know, something that comes to mind for me is just the idea of foodways. You know, when we look at regional foodways, 
there's a reason that they have survived so long. It's because they're so enriching. You know, they provide that sense of play and beauty and just aesthetic value and sensorial value. And they really bring people together socially and also really help us to connect very directly, very immediately with our, our immediate surroundings. And and people really, they really benefit from that. It brings people joy in a way that is just just irreplaceable. And um, and that's really what has helped sustainability in food to, to survive and in, in many cases rebound um, because that, that food way aesthetic is is still present and without that it, it just it just falls apart do you not see that in the the wine industry absolutely good, good. <laughs> um i mean a- absolutely i think that's it's a vast problem it's a vast problem you know the wine industry is huge there are many major brands and you know it's it's an alcoholic product i mean in many ways for many people it's a drug and the beauty aspect is is packaging for the experience of a drug. And, you know, when it's both stripped of its place and its nuance and its story from just the individual level to the regional and, and cultural level, um, I mean, it's just, a, it's a vast disservice. And then you see the, the pressures that come from that to mass produce and to pump out a product and, and all the damages that come from that on, on every level. Yeah, if I can sort of ground this in a, um, some uh, more larger cultural pieces in the wine world. Um, you know, the uh, terroir is something that we talk about a lot um, in the wine world, and it is often prized and uh, evaluated and um, commoditized. Um, and that can be an on-ramp for, for caring about things, and it can also be an off-ramp to prioritizing um, what is thought of as the the goal as opposed to what actually makes sense. Yeah. A really good example of this is, um, you know, Chardonnay is fantastic in Burgundy. Like, <laughs> I love a beautiful bottle of white Burgundy. I, it is something I, I feel a lot of joy in consuming. Um, and it connects me to a place and to a style and to a, a, an understanding of winemaking that, that really just is, is lovely. Um, and if someone tries to go Chardonnay here in Virginia because they are chasing after that sense of terroir, it is a disaster. Um, you know, uh, it, Chardonnay is incredibly susceptible to mildew. Um, we've seen firsthand how even when it's a, just in the corner of a vineyard, how it will spread disease amongst the rest of the vineyard. Um, and it can create a huge problem viticulturally, not to mention that then often in the cellar, it gets forced into something that it is trying to either mimic Chardonnay from Burgundy or, or from uh, um, California or somewhere, somewhere else. And then um, it, they, they're chasing after somebody else's terroir and because that, that is what is seen as commoditized. And uh, it, it ends up being really ugly. And I think doesn't end up doing that goal of actually connecting to people. Right. You know, the beauty that that these these two examples provide, Burgundy and, and parts of California, is that they, they found what works and, and they developed it with care and attention to how it matches their immediate landscape. And we see very often that that is not being done and, and the fallout is uh, obvious. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I, I, I heard that in the subcontext. That's why I asked. <laughs> um, and... You know, I, I, what I love about this sense of joy that you were talking about was, you know, so much of the appeal right now in like our need to make changes agriculturally and behaviorally to because of climate change, because of, you know, the, the crises that we're facing environmentally. Um, so much of it is this appeal to fear, like we're, you know, we're heading towards disaster, you know, we're already in like this, you know, what people call the sixth extinction event. Um, 
you know, all these dire predictions and, and so much of that is grounded in fear. And I think what you, you know, what I love about your approach is, I, I, is that I think it is actually the better way to motivate people to change behavior and to, to gain a sense of caring about these things, which is through love and joy for, you know, with that, with these experiences and, and which connect you in a positive way to them and makes you want to protect them and feel a sense of responsibility. Um, which is all, you know, again, all stuff that you guys are saying, which is uh, lovely. And I, you know, just as a follow up to the, the question about sustainability, you know, so, so often we as business people operating in a world where we have, um, non-materialistic values but we operate in a materialistic world our ecological and economic um values can clash and i guess maybe that's the best way to put it. like our needs our economic needs and our ecological values maybe is a better way to put it and so often economic values win out in many people's businesses and you know i think that has led to the world that we're in and i'm just wondering how you navigate these conflicts in your business and what ultimately guides your decision making when you when you face these conflicts yeah i mean i think that the first thing i would say on that is that uh, the most sustainable choice is one that uh, you're not actually choosing between those things that it is something that is both um ecologically and economically responsible. Um, because if it's only one of those two things, it's not gonna last, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it is a temporary choice. And so I think we are always sort of trying to find where do those things overlap? That is that is our, our first um, approach to that. Um, and then I think the second is, uh, line beyond that is that a, uh, if we have to list one way or the other, um, we know that that is also, that is going to be a temporary choice. This is going to have to be something that we keep coming back to. I think this sort of arcs back to what we said a moment ago about um, this being a continual learning um, is that we have to rethink things if we can't find that balance ourselves. Did you have anything to add, Kelly? Gosh, I mean, I, I feel like <laughs> Andrew really nailed well it. I really do. I do think that's true. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the idea of things just not lasting is, is um, there, you just mentioned fear a moment ago. And I think that, you know, choosing one or the other path has in it a sense of scarcity. And that scarcity is such a driving force in business. I mean, you know, if we are, if we can't pay our bills, then everything stops. So there's definitely a very palpable scarcity on that end. If someone who's trying to do sustainable work can't afford to continue on, the, this, the, the work stops, the beauty stops, and that narrative ends. And that's what pushes so many people to swing hard in the other direction. And I think it, you, you have to have a hand on both reins uh, to really find that middle path between the two. And I think there's a lot of tension there. Um, and, and that's just, uh, it's a constant relearning, as, as Andrew put it. You know, how do you navigate with those two pulls constantly at you? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do like the idea of, you know, sort of the Venn diagram and, and finding those overlaps and, and charting a path using those overlaps to to the extent that you can i know sometimes that's that's very difficult and i guess that's that's the uh the crux points um i i'm wondering i i just wanted to go back to you know there was the the example that you gave andrew of of chardonnay and hmm. something about that um resonated with me i'm trying to remember what it was oh darn 
this is why I'm trying to think about the questions you're on, and then I forgot the thing that I was thinking. About. I'll cut this out. Don't worry. But um, <laughs> California identity terroir. What did you say? I, I talked about it being a vector for disease. Vector in, for uh, in, in the year. Like you did. No, it was uh, it was the the idea of. Oh, that's what I mean. I mean, really, it's just a adding to what you were saying. But this this idea of. It, it it seems like such a human nature thing, like a, a a human psychological thing that when we experience pleasure, we want to repeat it, uh, even if that means trying to repeat it in a totally different way than we originally experienced it, like to force it, like you were saying, to happen. You know, there's like this whole Buddhist ideal of um, letting go, you know, like this idea of, <laughs> it is strange to talk about Buddhism, but <laughs> this is where, where my mind went was just this idea of like, we, when you experience a pleasure, it's all like, I have a delicious cookie. I want another cookie. I eat a potato chip. I want another potato chip kind of thing, as okay. opposed to like enjoying it as something that is ephemeral, that can only be experienced in that context, in that moment and letting go, like making that something that you appreciate much like life this is our one life i mean it's a longer period of time than just eating a cookie or drinking a glass of chardonnay but um i don't know this this is where my mind went with it i just thought kind of a tangent there but um perfect way to transition to go ahead sorry no, no, no. I, 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 uh, I, I have. I also share your interest in Buddhism, and I, I have some thoughts on this, this uh, search for beauty and and recreating of beauty uh, over and over. I mean, I, I feel like what I often sense is at the root of this is is this sense of grasping and ownership over beauty. We we experience the beautiful Chardonnay in Burgundy, and we want it again, uh, and and we want it at will, and and the pleasure feels like it's something we. Have a right to, uh, when in reality, you know, we have no right to anything in this life, and um, beauty is—it is just part of this ephemeral experience, as as you've described it. And I think, you know, our culture has a bad habit of finding beauty and then saying it's mine and grasping it and pushing for it, rather than just, you know, leaving the flower in the field, so to speak. Just just leave it where it is. Yeah, it's funny. I <laughs> I I lived in Amsterdam for a while and. I lived with a guy who had just come back from like six months in India and, and he was literally glowing. I mean, I think something about living on an ashram or, you know, basically living in the context of, of this culture, he was, he was, (laughs) he had a whole different perspective on life and we were walking down the street and I picked a flower and stuck it behind my ear. And he was like, instead of just appreciating that beauty of that flower, you've, pulled it off the plant and used it to adorn your ego. <laughs> just exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. exactly adorning the ego. Adorning the ego. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we yeah, we do that with so many things. Um which is a total perfect transition, not at all, to my next question for you, which is I just wanted to jump into like, what are the wines you make? And like what are the ingredients? Where do you source your ingredients for them? Absolutely. So this is a long list. So I'll, I'll buckle in. It's a long. It is a long list. <laughs> I'll try to be somewhat, uh, somewhat concise. So we specialize uh, in, a, in in aromatized wine. Uh, we call that uh, botanical wine. 
the most common example that people will be familiar with is vermouth. Uh, so that's a wine that has bitter botanicals added to it. Sometimes it's sweetened in some way. Um, it's most often fortified, but doesn't have to be. Uh, and it's a very vast genre that we both have a, a deep interest in. Um, so that's that's our core focus. And then we also do some exploratory winemaking as well. So we work with um, a wide variety of, of native fruits, hybrid grapes. Um, on the base winemaking side, uh, it's it's only hybrid or native grapes. So no vinifera um, and, and a deep, uh, deep use of hybrids, uh, specifically Vidal and Traminet. Um, we do have uh, a vineyard site that has a little more diversity, but it's not yet producing. Uh, we can talk more about that. But uh, right now, Vidal and Traminet are, are really performing well for us. Uh, we do grow muscadine on our farm as well, which we use in very small amounts. Um, and then um, on the non-grape side, uh, we're fermenting sweet potatoes, um, plums, red plums primarily. Um, and uh, we just started working with um, persimmons, uh, primarily American persimmon and uh, pawpaws, which grow wild here and are just a joy, a joy to work with, a joy and, and a pain. Um, <laughs> and uh, in terms of uh, the, uh, the botanical wine, um, we are trying to emphasize botanicals that are either of this place naturally or that would grow quite well here. And uh, that's a that's a, a wide a wide sourcing situation. So we, we grow a good amount here on our farm. We specialize in a number of things. Wormwood is a great example. Uh, Cardoon, artichoke, blessed thistle. Um, there's a lot that actually grows really well here. Uh, that's the, the beauty of botanicals and herbs is that uh, most of them can handle some pests. Most of them are, are not pleasant for animals to eat and they do well in, in uh, some mildew. So that's been a real winner for us. Um, we partner with a few small producers on some other things. Uh, so uh, Appalachian allspice. We work with a small farm to help uh, to, to help get that. Uh, they deliver it dried, so I order that from them. Um, let's see what else do we do. Da, 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 da. Just a lot of sort of diversified sourcing. Um, Michael Judd in Frederick, Maryland, has been a great asset for us in terms of fruit and various things. Um, he introduced us to this lovely cold hardy citrus called Flying Dragon. Uh, it's a bitter orange adjacent creature that grows well in our climate. Uh, so that's, How cold hardy is it? it? He has it outside and with no cover at all. And it's just planted in the ground as far as I can remember. So uh, he is in your zone, what do you zone? Seven? Six, uh, six B. Six? We're six B, but we're up in the mountains. Uh, he might be zone seven. Yeah. Okay. He's Still, that's 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 pretty pretty cool. That's getting close yeah. to, yeah. Place like people people in like Pennsylvania and New York might start to get excited. Yeah. <laughs> Not too far <laughs> off. Yeah. Um, that's that's great. Um, keep going. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I could go on and on, but uh, you know, the well, goal. Nick, for... Nick Judd is um he. What's the name of his farm? It's, oh, I don't know the name of his farm. Is he? I, I know online he re, he refers to himself as the permaculture. Permaculture, yeah. Yes, permaculture. yeah. That's yeah. the yeah. He's that's how I know him as well. Um, yeah, he really wrote, amazing story. He has a lot yeah. of incredible stuff to share. Um, and yeah, good good person for people to check out. I just wanted to underline his his Absolutely. stuff that he's got going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I just, uh, I mean, I, th I think we're constantly exploring new things to work with. You know, last year we grew some um, African horned melon and we're going to try to work that into some things. We grew bitter melon um, from, you know, which is native to both uh, India and China and many hot places, quite frankly. Um, and that grew really well here. So I think, you Big know, we're in Filipino um, mm -hmm. cooking. 
bitter melon. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. I, I'm, I'm vaguely addicted to it. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> um, so the goal, the goal is to not just use, you know, what was native here, but what can we, what can we grow here for the future? You know, that's the whole focus mm. of the botanical wine is uh, where, where does the future take us in agriculture as it gets hotter and wetter and more volatile in the mid Atlantic? Yeah. Amazing. And cardoons. So I've heard good things about cardoons sort of drought resistance. Cause it's, I mean, it's, from Mediterranean climates, if I'm not mistaken, or is that not true? That's right. Yeah, it's a relative of the artichoke and uh, has a very long growing lineage. Um, it's a very pleasant plant to grow. It's very drought tolerant. Um, it does need a little water when it gets when it gets quite hot, but we do some mulching around the base, and that that seems to help quite a bit. Um, and uh, it's very tolerant to animals. Uh, the deer won't eat it. Nothing really eats it. And uh, it has a little bit of mildew pressure, but that's at the end of the season. And uh, we usually harvest out before that. So um, it just uh, grows itself. Yeah. <laughs> and we use yeah. the whole stock. I love, so, I love uh, that about plants. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> uh, the, it's funny. I was just, I, so it's, I was just looking through an Italian cookbook that we have. Um, I'm currently, I don't know if you hear it in the background, but Wendy is making like homemade pasta, handmade pasta. And I was looking through things and there was a recipe with cardoons in it. And I was like, man, I have not explored that. And they were talking about um, a Italian poet who won the Nobel Prize for literature back in the, I don't even know when, and he was like, uh, he was alive in the early 1900s. And one of his more famous poems is about a donkey munching on cardoons. <laughs> so, so there you go. If anybody wants to dig into that, <laughs> they call them hunchbacks in, in, in Italian, they're called referred to as hunchbacks because they're little curved things. Uh, anyway, <laughs> random pawpaws. Uh, I can, I, I would bet that the joys and tragedies of those are the, and we should talk about, Papa's. I don't know if I've talked too much about Papa's on this <laughs> podcast, but they're North America's only like tropical fruit, essentially. Is that is that the best way to put it? Yeah, that's exactly native right. tropical fruit. Not, not that's exactly right. Native, yeah. and it basically followed, you know, the as you know, after the last ice age, sort of claim, you know, um, moved north as as the ice retreated, and now you know, it's found all wild growing in Appalachia, but we've also bred quite a few, when I say we, like humans have bred quite a few new varieties that have different qualities. Um, and it, uh, as I understand, <laughs> the best way people describe it is like cross between a banana and a mango, and it's sort of like a custard apple. So the, 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 the headache or the heartbreak of working with them is that they are, they have this very short window of ripeness, right? It, they go from like hard to mushy to just brown pulpy mess in like three days, if, if I'm not mistaken. Is that, is, am I giving a good introduction? What's your, what's your experience? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, you're spot on. Um, they are, they are exactly as you've described, banana, mango, 50-50. It's a totally unique flavor. And on top of that, they're intensely aromatic. You can smell yeah. a single pawpaw from, you know, a few yards away. I mean, it's it's a lovely mm. fruit. It's a lovely experience. But um, yeah, they ripen very quickly and they're extremely fragile. If you drop one mm. and it bruises, that spot will ripen, you know, within a day, maybe within a few hours. Um, we've gotten around that by, by freezing them. So we harvest them. Oh, no. um, and uh, if they're very hard, we let them ripen up a bit, but uh, we just freeze them right away. And that way we can really preserve that nice aromatic pulp 
uh, without getting too much oxidative weird grossness. Yeah. So, so that way you can sort of, because they all uh, also, the other challenge to work with them, like in a winery situation is that they don't all ripen all at once. So you can't just go out and be like, it's harvest time for papas. They sort of hear this one's ready and then this one's ready and then this one's ready. And it takes a while to amass enough to have a workable amount. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And on top of that, many times the trees are taller than us, um, at least mm-hmm. taller than me. I'm not very tall, so it's it's <laughs> right. very easy to be too tall for me. Um, and, you know, you'll have to shake the tree or use some kind of harvesting tool to get the fruit down if it's not totally ready. And it, it really is a fruit by fruit experience um, on the harvesting side. And uh, in the winery, you know, it's very pulpy. Uh, we remove the skins and the seeds before um, engage, engaging with any fermentation. And uh, there's a lot of pectin. There's a lot of pulp. The leaves are dense and gooey and mushy and gross. Uh, so it's uh, it, it really does require quite a bit of handling, but uh, it's absolutely do you, worth it. Do you blend it with grapes to make that a little easier? Or is it all, can you do a straight papa ferment? <sighs> I, I would not do a straight pawpaw. Um, I, I want to say we used apples. Yes, uh, we used apples, apples okay. in our first uh, oh, our lovely. first sparkling. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know the pH with pawpaws, if I remember correctly, was over five, and um, that's just you know it's unsafe uh, in terms of fermentation uh, from our standpoint. So we don't want to really we don't want to put anyone at risk by cultivating unhealthy microbes. So uh, can you, you know, keep can you explain that. that? What do you mean by uh, what, unsafe? Totally. What, yeah, what's totally. The risk? Totally. I I think botulism is something that I am very keenly aware of with fermentation, Um, you know, over um, a certain pH. um, I believe it's four, but it's actually been reduced down of late uh, below that. So botulism can start to grow uh, in less acidic environments. And of of course, that's deadly. And it it grows in anaerobic environments like you would find in a fermentation vessel. Um, You know, when you have a lot of CO2 that's pushing out your oxygen, um, even with aeration, you're going to end up with uh, some some anaerobic pockets, no doubt. So uh, we, it, it's it's just too risky um, to not have something else there to keep that pH in a safe place. That's great. Yeah, I, I, I think it's just important to say that. I, I feel like I've heard um, much softer versions of this, even still today, where um, people don't want to work with hybrids because they are quote too goopy or too um, sludgy, and they um, that will um, Either damage the the their their winemaking or damage their equipment. Uh, the, like it all gets stuck in the press and you can't can't do anything with it. Like, like all, all sorts of crazy things like this. Uh, yeah, they're still being repeated today. Yeah. Well, I will yeah. I will push back just a little on the on that necessarily not being true. Um, now this isn't a hybrid, but having worked with Norton grapes, um, the, the fully native grape, it it is solid snot. Um, and it it does, it does require a lot of spe- we had to use a very big special pump because it was so thick. But uh, nothing was broken, so it, I don't think it's that bad. No, <laughs> and, and I just you know having done uh, a season in Vermont this this harvest this past harvest with La Garagista, oh, it was definitely it, this was definitely a consideration. But it's not like it's unworkable. It's just like you have to do different things. Like you know, right. there's. Essentially, what they do is a lot more foot treading, like a lot more thorough foot treading, because you just like are breaking it down, mushing everything up really well, like really, you know, and yeah, like really basically working it in, breaking it apart, making it less pulpy. Um, but it definitely, yeah, it, it, it's a little different than working with, you know, what you're, if you're used to working with vinifera, it's a little different, but nothing that's not manageable. It's just different practices, different, yeah, employ different that's techniques. Right. 
Um, <laughs> but um, what what else do you hate about hybrids? Just kidding. <laughs> you guys have I noticed our our entire vineyard is hybrid. So yeah, right. <laughs> well, this was the transition. I noticed you guys mentioned like we only work with hybrids. There seemed to be a subtext there. What was the subtext that I detected there? Um. I think dedication comes to mind. I think a lot of people have a token hybrid um, and then they'll blend it away with vinifera or, you know, it, it's, it's more of a showcase um, rather than a true commitment. You know, the bulk of their production, the bulk of their sales, it's all going to come from vinifera. Um, and uh, we could have done that. And I'm sure we could have made very predictable base wines for our work or just regular wines and been a small winery doing, you know, predictable, cool wine in our cool way. And it would have been fine. Um, we could have done our aromatized wines with vinifera and I'm sure they would have been lovely um, and easier to understand. Um, but we chose not to do that at all. We chose to take a more difficult narrative um, and uh, just really own it and uh, own it to completion. Nice. And what yeah, I think, you know, it, um, just to expound upon that a little bit more, you know, hybrids, um, I, I assume you've talked about them on the, your show pre previously. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, they, 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 they do have, um, uh, both a, a, a often a European and, a, and a, an American parent, and um, are going to because of that uh, American uh, heritage actually be able to handle some of the pressures that we experience here um, a lot better. Um, right. You know, especially in terms of um, mildew. You know, I think that this is a great example. Like, um, you know, I. Uh, Chardonnay with powdery mildew, just as a since we're already bashing Chardonnay, let's keep going with that. Um, <laughs> uh, the powdery mildew, when it sets uh, in the canopy um, in Chardonnay, spreads rapidly. Um, it it just really, really um, can spread over um, you know blocks and blocks of vineyards um, in a matter of days. Um, whereas with hybrids, they they uh, you know, Cayuga is one that we grow quite a bit of in our vineyard. Um, it's not that we never see powdery mildew on there. It's just, it takes a while to show up. It may show up on one leaf on one corner of the vineyard and still not be the, by the end of that row by the next week. Like it, it just moves so much slower because these, these plants actually just have some natural resistance to it. And, and that time frame is really what makes these more sustainable and makes these the better fit for our, our, our place. And I think us choosing to dedicate our, our our grape sourcing entirely to to hybrids really puts the flag out there that like this is why this is important and we are we are are, are going to fly that flag. Yeah, I think that's that. Thank you, Andrew, for <laughs> providing the background that we needed. Oh, I think that's what I'm what I was getting at when I talked about you know a token hybrid. I think um, th there's a very at this point the understanding that hybrids offer a greater advantage and sustainability is, is beginning to become common knowledge in our local public sphere. Um, and I think a lot of people have, you know, one or so, and they and, and they try to put the spotlight on it and say, you know, we're doing this, it's sustainable, et cetera. Um, and uh, and it's, it just kind of shadows the, the full need, you know, to actually embrace that for, for systemic change. You know, and, and you say, I mean, I really appreciate obviously your approach and your commitment to hybrids. I, but I also, I mean, <laughs> I have a joke and a serious comment, but the joke would be maybe, you know, what you need is like one Chardonnay plant per, you know, and then surround it with Cayuga and then you can plant another one. <laughs> we, we've talked about that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. and then it won't spread. It'll just be contained, you know, a little yeah. fortress of, 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 of hybrid surrounding these little, <laughs> little islands of mildew <laughs> and maybe you actually get something. No. Uh, but the, I, I mean, I, I do appreciate if, if people, if people need to transition and this is what they need to do to transition is to like, you know, plant a couple rows of something and that helps them to see like, oh, this actually does work. Like, great. You know, start with a few rows of something that's not vinifera and 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 make the comparison. I, I feel very confident you will wish everything you'll soon wish everything <laughs> was that rather than your vinifera when you start comparing them. But um it's you know, I, I, I encourage people, especially here in California, there's like such an entrenched vinifera culture uh that you know, I, 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 but I see this like really easy transition as people replant or if they're, you know, planting new blocks to, to trial some of these varieties that would just essentially in our climate here be no spray grapes and yeah. be super hardy and more productive and more drought tolerant. And, you know, I mean, obviously there's a wide range of hybrids and I'm, I'm trying harder and harder to not generalize about them because there are just so many you know, it, I, that's the other thing too. It's like, we can't really just talk about hybrids. Like we have to start being specific about specific varieties. They all have very different qualities, but generally speaking with the hardiness that you guys are talking about and, and everything else, these are all generally speaking what you'll find in most of them. But let me, that, that brings up something you guys mentioned Traminette and I love Traminette because I love Gewurz Of course, it's the, you know, Gewurz is one of its parents. It basically is like the hybrid Gewurz, like the smells are the same, the flavors are the same. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong about that, but that's been my experience with it. But because of that, it's also one of the less hardy um, and less resistant varieties of hybrids. Is that, have you found that to be true? Do you know? Um, I would say that it is uh not as resistant as others, but um, I think there are ones that are, are much worse. <laughs> so, oh, okay. uh, it's on the lower side of the, the spectrum, uh, but it's not at the bottom, uh, is how uh, I would describe it. Um, got it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not, it's not Chardonnay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice. And Vidal Blanc is unique in that it has Pierce's disease resistance, if I'm not mistaken. Is that true? Do you know? Do you guys know? Yeah. I, you know, I don't know a lot about that. I, I do know that it has some, but uh, it's it's a. I just know that it's there. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. that's a real problem out here. Um, I was going to so, ask if that has reached you guys. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, it's not really a driver, but I'm I'm pretty sure it's present. Yeah, it seems like you know with the cold winters, there it it's keeping it at bay right now, but it is moving north. I know it's been in. It's pretty. In, it's like extremely intense in Texas and Georgia and places like that where grapes are grown. Um, but I, as I hear it's, it's heading North uh, yeah, as everything is, you know, right. We're, we're pretty far to the North and uh, our, our partner vineyards and, you know, our neighbors, we're all, we're all on the Northern side of Virginia. So it's pretty cool up here, but the Southern part of Virginia gets very hot. So I, I would not be surprised if that was a more vulnerable area. I've not got to taste Vidal Blanc. Can you describe it? Do you like it? I love Vidal. Uh, it is, it, it is a very favorite grape for me. Um, so it's um, parent uh, on the, the French side is um, uh, Udny Blanc, which is what's um, one of the grapes for um, uh, cognac and um, right, right. Uh, many of the uh, sort of uh, obscure blends that you see in the southwest uh, of France. Um, 
and it has that sort of that that round, soft, sort of apple-y kind of thing going on. Um, and uh, it it's a very pleasant grape. I think is, is, is how I would describe it. Um, uh, it's it's a grape that I love to eat, eat right off the vine. Um, and that's yeah. just, um, and it's it also produces um, so heavily. Um, you know, it, it's oh wow. It's actually one of the more difficult things is that um, uh, dropping fruit is really required um, to get balanced ripeness um, uh, in in Vidal, and so it, it's there's, there's just so many clusters, um, and often they are, are quite heavy. Um, so that that that's the, the the balance point with quality with Vidal um, is, is trying to reduce its fruit load. But um, I I really love it. I, I love it as a great variety. Mm-hmm. Amazing, yeah. and and. Uh, you do you guys personally grow? I know that you aren't growing the Vidal and the Tremonet. Is that right? Those are the ones that you're purchasing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, our uh, our vineyard is uh, is too young to be producing. Right. No fruit coming from there yet. But uh, Vidal is not actually in our lineup. So um, what we actually tried to do with our vineyard is create uh, essentially an experimental plot where we planted a wide variety of grapes um, to see how they do. Um, and to see, you know, what we could give back and what, what we could learn for our region. So uh, Vidal is not there uh, and neither is Traminet, quite frankly. So once our grapes really get going, um, our wine recipes for the botanical wines that we make and whatever else we make, that's all going to change to reflect what's coming out of our vineyard. Right. And where? what about the Muscadine? Where is that? <laughs> the Muscadine is on our property. Um, okay. and, uh, is it basically a- wild? No, they don't grow wild up up here. Um, okay. So, uh, so there, it's a little too cool um, to, as far as I know, to generally find them in our region. Um, but down south, uh, you might. Um, sure. And uh, we're we're really on the edge of the growing zone for muscadine, but ours has done fine. Um, we're always a little nervous about it when we get really uh, long frosts and uh, and it really dips below yeah. freezing up here. We, we get a little nervous, but it's it's survived several winters now. So yeah, it seems to be thriving. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like it's the. Um, I mean, it's hardy against everything except the cold, though. If if I'm not mistaken, it's a pretty bulletproof grape, right? It's pretty bulletproof. It does suffer from a few different rots, um, but I, uh, I, you know, if you if you give it a lot of air and you know you keep its its leaves well spaced, um, that really takes care of it. You know, it just needs a little bit of airflow to to really keep it under control. Yeah, canopy uh, management is is the thing, and because it it, it grows fairly wildly and erratically. Um, it, that, that takes some attention. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and it's, I mean, the, the ones that I've seen, it's almost like berry picking rather than grape clusters. Is that, do you, do you find that to be true or do you, are you getting actual clusters of grapes? Yeah, no, I, I think berry picking is a more accurate term. You know, the, the cluster formation on muscadines is, uh, it's very spread out. Uh, it's a few berries here and there, and uh, they ripen irregularly often. So yeah. it's uh, it's almost more like pawpaws, quite frankly, <laughs> <laughs> like like pears with like. But um, yeah, you you really have to kind of watch it and uh, and just um, you know, pick them as that they sounds come. Sounds like an incredible wine, by the way, a muscadine pawpaw wine. Um, <laughs> just throwing that out there. Okay. <laughs> um, what what so what are the varieties that you're growing in the vineyard? Sure. So um, the largest um, planting is is Takayuga, um, which is one that uh, has already shown very well for us. Right. Um, uh, but we also have um, Frontenac Gris, Frontenac Blanc, Sabrevois, um, Marquette, Prairie Star, um, and um, 
Louis uh, Swenson. Swenson. Um, and then uh, a handful of other um, hybrids that some of them just have numbers um, or random names uh, that we got from a local uh, Greek breeder, uh, Cliff Ambers. Yeah. Um, oh, fantastic. Just handed over some stuff to us and said, see how these go. Like, <laughs> yes, we have his own all tagged. Do you have his um, Carol May Ambers growing? Yes, we do. Yeah. Oh, you know, he gave us a bunch of cuttings very late in the season and a lot of them unfortunately didn't make it. Um, but yes, we have, we have one of those. <laughs> Fantastic. Great. Yeah. Um, and, and then I think he has another one named for his dad. Do you have that one? I don't think so. No. Okay. Great. It also has numbers. So maybe you have numbers. <laughs> yeah, sure. we, might, yeah. we might have it and not recognize it yes. as that. <laughs> we have a lot of digits and numbers together. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's. I mean, for anyone unfamiliar, Cliff is. Uh, I've I've tried to get him on the podcast because he's kind of like a legend in grape breeding, uh, and specifically in your region there. But he's like, I don't do promotion. I don't do interviews. <laughs> he's like, he's he's uh, he's like the character, and but super deeply knowledgeable. Such a great guy. I mean, just to talk to, to totally generous with his knowledge and everything like that, and um, has. Yeah, has bred quite a few unique varieties f- that are getting out there. I think finally, and and I'm really excited to see how they do. I hope you know have to keep me posted on how that does for you. But it sounds like a really all around great grape, like super hardy, super resistant, and yummy as well. So curious. Yeah. Um, now you, I mean, this is. I know you guys like them for their hardiness, but you aren't growing organically. Is that right? Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we um, we find a lot of your fruit that you source is organic or wild, even um, better than organic. That's also yeah. true, right? That's right. Yeah. So the the non grape uh, fruit, much of it is is wild and and certainly by default organic um, or grown in an organic setting. You know, sometimes we'll we'll get some some papas for uh, not papas persimmons, for example, from um, Michael Judd, who we mentioned, um, and uh, those uh, he he just grows them in a, his beautiful permaculture garden. Uh, so yeah. beyond organic, easily. Um, yeah. So on the fruit side, um, that's, you know, that's the fermentables, I should say, that's very much the case, um, often, but, uh, on the grape side, no, we're, we're not organic. Um, you know, we, we do implement a lot of organic treatments, um, and protocols in our work. So neem oil, um, you know, sulfur is quite common, um, in all treatment programs, but we use sulfur when needed. Um, you know, we use clay, uh, when needed, uh, and just constantly exploring, different treatments that would fall into that category. But uh, we maintain the use of traditional applications as well. Um, it, you know, it's very hard in a climate like ours to be fully organic. Um, and there's a risk, if you are, of really over applying certain things. You know, a great consideration, well, two considerations for us on, on that front um, are copper and, and sulfur, quite frankly. Um, you know, copper can really build up in the soil and our disease pressures are such that, uh, you know, if you're spraying all the time, um, it's it's going to be possibly unhealthy long term. And that's a part of sustainability. Uh, and sulfur has has similar issues. It, it also has some uh, some issues in terms of asthmatic uh, drift. So we want to be mindful of that. Um, and, and, you know, it's difficult with conventional chemicals. I mean, some of them are absolutely horrifying. And some of them break down to nothing in days. Uh, and uh, I think it's it's a very it's a very heavy thing to try to measure. And the question that often arises is, you know, should 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 one grow grapes at all? And I think it's a question that we should always be revisiting. But uh, I think for now that that's our angle, and 
sustainability in, in the vineyard. Do you have anything to add to that? Um, I think cultural approaches are really important. And a lot of people, you know, even people growing vinifera here do see a lot of success uh, with with just really targeted cultural management techniques. I know um, Andrew has a lot of experience with this um, at Linden. Yeah, so uh, um, I I learned a lot of uh, what I know about viticulture from Jim Law at Linden Vineyards, where I worked um, many years ago. Um, And, uh, you know, Jim's whole lens has always been that your first line of defense in anything is canopy management. And I very much agree with that. Like um, if you are very strategic about where you're pulling, you're thinning your shoots, what leaves you're pulling, you know, that can do a a lot to allow very specific airflow through the canopy and reduce that um, pressure from, from mildews quite a bit. Um, I think site selection is also a really important aspect in this, you know, um, if you have a, a vineyard site that's down in a gully, then you're going to have a lot of problems. Um, you know that there's the water's going to pool there, and then um, and air is going to get trapped there. Um, whereas uh, you know for us, um, we are very fortunate that our vineyard is just up on a windy hill, and that makes all the difference in the world in terms of how um, how much sticks um, in the vineyard as it's passing through. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, that's that really plays into the conversation of sustainable viticulture in the mid-Atlantic in that, you know, out here, uh, the, the, the wine culture is very much oriented around entertainment. And it's much easier to have a big entertainment venue with a nice grassy lawn and a place for your photo shoots if it's flat and green and in a lowland position. And that's not an ideal place to grow grapes. We want altitude, we want an incline, we basically want the side of a mountain and no one wants to do a wedding photo shoot on a rocky mountainside. And that's where the grapes need to be growing. And so you know, the best vineyards that spray the least in our experience tend to be at those sites where they're doing canopy management. They've got great airflow all the time. It's gonna be drier because the humidity is settling lower. I mean, it's just, uh, it's it's key. And a large challenge point for us locally is that the industry isn't oriented around great viticulture. It's oriented around event venues and and profit. Right, right. Well, and what what is the difference? Uh, like, what are the treatments that you have to do that you you've chosen to do in your vineyard, and and how would that look differently if you were growing vinifera? Oh yeah, I mean, I think um, you know the let's see where do we begin with that? I mean, it, vinifera would really require a much tighter. Um, a tighter spray schedule if we're looking at it from that angle in the, in the vineyard and uh, a lot more canopy management, you know, I mean, you would have to be out there with chemicals, maybe multiple chemicals um, altogether every two weeks, um, sometimes every week. I mean, if disease pressures are high and you're growing something very sensitive and maybe you've grown it in a very tight row formation to maximize your fruit yield, you you know, some people are spraying every week and it's, it's just, too many chemicals, you know, it's just too much. And it's expensive. It drives up the price of wine here but without driving up the quality. And it creates a, just that this is why we need event venues because, <laughs> because we have wine that's outrageously priced. Um, you know, when you're growing a hybrid, if you're growing a hybrid in an ideal site with good canopy management, you know, you can, it, I know Andrew's described um, situations where it's been a month or more between having to get out there and use any kind of chemical management. Um, and I, I, we want to, we want to get it even longer. We want it to be as long as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I actually was emailing with Cliff and I, I told him 
uh, I wanted to grow no spray, you know, in New York. And he was like, look, I don't know if you have any experience growing grapes east of the Mississippi, <laughs> but <laughs> um, <laughs> he was like, yeah, uh, he, he was like, the. I mean, his thing was commercial vinifera growers. He's like here, I think he was talking about Virginia, putting on like 15 to 25 sprays of everything. And then they're just sort of not talking about how much they're doing. And to yes. because yeah. it would be shocking to anybody to know like how much yeah. chemicals they were applying, how many chemicals they were applying. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, vinifera grows in Virginia because of the volume of chemicals that are, are on it. Yeah. 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 Um, that's yeah. crazy. He said, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. no, no, go ahead. I mean, I'm so sorry. That's such a, it's such a, a point of flame and fire for, for me. I mean, I just, you know, we, there's so much, I talk about this all the time. Um, so, but there's so much conversation about, about terroir and I just don't under, I just don't understand how you can talk about terroir when you are stuffing it full of chemicals at that rate, <laughs> at that level. Like there's nothing expressing anything of the landscape. You are sterilizing your environment essentially. And I mean, I don't want to make an. I do. I do want to make some enemies. <laughs> I'm sorry for for upsetting people on this point because I know I do. Um, but uh, I just, I just don't believe it's authentic, and authenticity is one of my highest values. Well, no, I, I, I really appreciate that, and I appreciate you being willing to um, anger some people. I think it's, yeah, it's yeah. infuriating to know that this is how it's being done, and so if they need to get angry at us calling that out, that's fine. Yep. Um, I, 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 and, and having said that, you know, that kind of is a good segue into what, what is it like there where you are in, in relation to growing these grapes that you're growing and trying to market the wine that you are making in that area? Sure. I mean, I think, um, one of the wonderful things about, well, let me, let me rephrase that. One of the very difficult things about growing hybrids, um, in, uh, an environment like this is that people don't know what they are and people don't recognize the names of uh, the grape varieties, especially some of the more obscure things that um, we may be trying trying out in the future with our vineyard. Um, but I think that's also the, the greatest asset. You know, people aren't coming to it with this preconception that like, oh, you grow Chardonnay so that I know what Chardonnay should taste like and I, that I know what I'm supposed to get out of this. Instead, they're, they're coming to it with an open mind and saying, oh, do I like this? Do I actually connect with this? And I think that that's, that's really wonderful. Um, I think that we have the opportunity to say, yeah, there's this really cool thing. You might not have heard of it before, but it, it's awesome. And here's why. Um, and I think that we have a, a second layer on that in that most of our wines are um, either aromatized wines or um, weird <laughs> different uh, fruit projects. And so, you know, the wine itself is already in that camp. You know, most people um, don't have a, a, a very geeky knowledge of um, the whole aromatized wine uh, scene in history and, and ours are even outside of that. And so um, they, they get to taste these things and say, oh, I don't know that I've had something like this. Um, but I, I really enjoy it. And, and I think that's, that's such a rewarding experience. Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, just a, a thing to add to that, you know, we often sell at farmer's markets. Uh, we'd like to say that the farmer's market is our tasting room, um, because we don't have one, but, um, <laughs> you know, we often end up with people who have never had vermouth, never had aromatized wine, or if they, if they have, it's, it's been bottom of the barrel ABC store stuff. Um, but a lot of people, you know, they don't know the grapes, they don't know aromatized wine and it's a blank slate and, and they have the option to engage with it in sort of this gestalt 
manner where they just they're just absorbing the experience with no preconceptions and it's it's just absolutely beautiful you know there's nothing driving them and they get to choose for themselves what do they think about this with with nothing behind it yeah that's fun that, that no prejudices no biases no no ego attachments that's always a good thing i think that's that, that is kind of the opportunity right now with i mean because it what you are saying is not, I don't think, unique to your area. I mean, I don't think anybody is familiar with names like Louise Swenson. I'm like, wait, who is who is that? <laughs> like, My great aunt. <laughs> right, right. Um, I mean, Chardonnay is a, is a, is a name now, too. Um, but I think it went the other direction. <laughs> um, instead of being a, a human name that became a grape name, I think it's a grape name that's now become a human name. But <laughs> or, or sometimes dogs' names. Anyway. <laughs> Just bring Chardonnay back, um, <laughs> but uh, the yeah, I mean, I, I think what you're saying that is a great opportunity for people to. I mean, this is what I've tried to do with my wine here, which is like even if I'm making uh, a wine with with vinifera, I I am not putting the name of the grape on partly for that same reason to create a space where people stop approaching wines based on familiar names, you know, because that opens up this whole opportunity for wines that people have never heard of to be brought back into production or be brought for the first time into production as we need to adapt our wine industries. We need to adapt our farming to more resilient, more resistant, more, you know, more adapted grapes. And if we're always stuck on like, it has to be a familiar name, we'll never get there. And I, I, I think that, you know, that's both the challenge and the opportunity in in many ways is that like hey you know just try it like there's no explanation needed you just have to taste it because you've never heard of it you've never experienced it it's brand new to you um both with grapes as well as what you're saying with aromatized wines and and how's that going for you i know you guys really dig that and that's obviously like at the heart of the name of your farm so what what's that all about what do you what do you, why do you like them so much? And <laughs> what are you doing with them? Oh, I, you know, I think we both came, well, I know we came to aromatized wine independently of each other um, and both mutually fell in love just with the genre, with the craft. It, it has a level of creative play that um, you really can't find if you're just fermenting, you know, fermenting a grape, getting it to bottle. That's an elegant art. Um, this really brings in a human hand um, and, and, uh, centers on that in a way that I think is, is quite honorable. And uh, it's just very open and creative. It's a genre with so many different faces. Um, and it really invites play into the conversation, um, you know, really uh, uh, engages the consumer, so to speak, in a way that that forces them to, to be creative at home. And I, I think that's a very valuable practice uh, for, for our human growth and development. But, um, you know, I, I think, um, let's see, I, I think that it seems like it's been so well received in the market. You know, we just started working uh, with a, an incredible distributor that we absolutely love, Williams Corner Wine, and they have a, an outstanding aromatized wine portfolio that, that we've always admired. <laughs> so we're just thrilled to uh, to be working with them. I can't say that enough. And um, we, you know, our wines are a little weird um, and, uh, and and a little expensive and a little expensive <laughs> um, and and very non traditional. You know, we've really tried to orient around a very different botanical palette than many most um, aromatized wines out there. And we sent them off our first shipment, and I honestly was was terrified. I was really expecting it to sit in their warehouse, not move. They would be angry, like it, the whole thing. And it flew, as far as we can tell. They sold out. They sold out almost immediately. 
and uh, the demand vastly outpaced uh, what we produced. So um, people loved it, and uh, we are just Amazing. absolutely tickled. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I think I, I, I have been really struck by how well-received our wines have been. Um, you know, Kelly mentioned that we um, our tasting room is basically us setting up at farmer's markets, and uh, the number of people who, you know, they look at um, – a wine called thistle and they had no idea what to expect yeah. and um they uh sometimes take a pause before they are willing to <laughs> to taste um and then when they do they are they often the reaction is just um uh, a surprised enjoyment um they 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 really enjoy what they're tasting they're they're drawn in um by the concept and and, and all the complexity that's in them. Um, and they're also surprised by that, that they, they are enjoying it. And I think that that adds another element uh, to that, that is really rewarding for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I, I know some, uh, I, can you, I, I was going to say one thing, I'm going to stop myself and ask you another question, but just the question is, what do they taste like? I mean, I know obviously all probably very different depending on the recipes, but can, you know, are there themes or textural things or you know where do they fit in the flavor palette sure yeah i i think um a theme that i see is is concentration um and complexity there are lots of aromatized wines out there that are very beautiful uh, and they're very elegant and they're very simple and i think that um, those are things that i love and i think it takes a lot of skill to make those things um ours are very complex we use a lot of different plants and we really layer in and pack in the flavor and um they what i what i strive to do is really create an arc on the palate we want the flavor experience to go all the way over the palate um, starting at the front, ending at the back, or just in some expansive way. We never want it to land in one place and stay there. You know, I want it to be um, really a, a journey for people uh, to experience. Um, and then I think beyond that, you know, our our releases thus far have all been on the sweet side, um, and uh, that's a thing that we we are learning how to balance. When you first, when I I, I can't speak for other aromatized winemakers because there are so few of us, but um, when we first create. Uh, a botanical wine, as we call it, um, the bitterness is quite pronounced um, and it softens substantially over time. Uh, and so, you know, the balance of sweet to bitter is something that we're still dialing in. So they're, they're leaning sweet. We want to dial that back. Uh, we're actually working on some drier iterations. Uh, so hopefully we'll be able to explore more and introduce more as we grow. Nice. Well, I, I mean, just not for nothing, but do you guys know uh, Ian Thorson McCarthy? I don't no. think so. No. His project is called Artemis Botanical. And um, I actually <laughs> did an episode <laughs> with him. He's a big remove maker. Um, and I mean, his, his I, I bring him up uh, partly because obviously this strange connection with the name and maybe not that strange, but um, he, you know, he has said things, he, he has said, I'm paraphrasing him, but essentially like the, you know, one of the best ways to reflect terroir is with these aromatized, with a vermouth, you know, with an aromatized one, because you're pulling all of these local ingredients into one thing and really reflecting, you know, that local biodiversity in the wine through these unique flavors that you can create that are, that are, that are like a fingerprint for your specific area. And, you know, it just makes me want to ask you guys, do you, how do you see terroir in relation to vermouth? Or oh. the aromatized wines. Do you do you avoid saying the word vermouth because it it bring can you know associates with things that people are, are familiar with, and you try to be a little unfamiliar. 
Yeah, I'm yeah. gonna answer the, the go, go Ruth part, it. and I'll let Kelly answer the, sure, <laughs> the, sure, the bigger yeah. question. Uh, <laughs> so, the, um, just for for a clear explanation, um, you know, vermouth is a style of aromatized wine or botanical wine, um, and specifically, it is um, one that is the primary bittering agent is wormwood. Um, yeah. But there's many other bittering plants out there. Um, gentian is one that we work with uh, quite a bit. Uh, mm. uh, there's lot, lots of others that 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 uh, can can be the the defining style that you're engaging with when aromatized wines. And um, so that's why we don't use the word vermouth. Is that like Got that's it. a very specific thing. And yeah. one of our wines is a vermouth. Um, maybe a second one here comes soon. Um, but uh, the of the the other four are not. Uh, they are they they are uh, of their own styles and their own their own expressions. Yeah. I, 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 oh, well, go can ahead. I ask a follow up yeah. question to that? Does that mean that you, bitter is not always the flavor profile you're going for? Like, are you doing something that's like a lillet or you know that kind of aromatized wine? Um, bitter is always present in some capacity, but okay. I find that there are many different variations or, or iterations, I should say, many different expressions of bitter. Uh, wormwood just happens to be extremely piercing in its bitterness, um, but there are there are many other things. I mean, gentian is is, is quite bitter. Um, cardoon in concentration, which we use it at concentration, is extremely bitter. Um, you know, it, it, its leaves are extremely bitter. I you know artichoke, which we also grow, it's used as a tonic because it's bitter. Um, so bitterness is always there. It's just how is it bitter? There's a lot of nuance there. And do you, in this is me getting into you know cocktail philosophy, but do you want these to be in cocktails? Or do you want them to be by themselves? And yeah, I'll just stop with that question. And then well, <laughs> I, I love the concept. Just framing it as cocktail philosophy, I think that that that's very attuned to it. something I, I feel like we talk about a lot. <laughs> um, but I think uh, our our intention with our wines is that they um, are powerful and un- and unique enough to be used in a cocktail, but can also be enjoyed um, on their own, either you know chilled or a rice or um, just just from the bottle. Um, you know, I think it uh, we see it. As, as we're trying to make something that, that can can be in both camps. Gotcha. And it's a so it's essentially a, what you because you've also said most of them have been on the sweeter side, so they're sort of bitter sweets. Yes. Yes. Like texturally think, bitter, uh, but with a that sweet element right. as well. And and I, I mean, I guess my follow up question was just that in in service of balancing a cocktail where you might have uh, you know a high proof spirit that will have the impression of sweetness often that bitterness is often a way to sort of like keep it a balanced beverage when you make a cocktail with it. Is that, is that your understanding? I mean, do you feel it the same way? This is just me riffing, but I'm curious if that's. I think that is one way to approach things. Um, And I think that that is um, some of the more um, elegant cocktails are exactly that. Um, You know, I think a a martini is a very good example of this. You know, you you take your gin, you take your vermouth, Especially, uh, I like them in equal parts, um, and um, sure. the the intention is that they are to balance each other. Um, and I, I think that there's a lot of beautiful cocktails that are that way, but I don't think that's the only way to make cocktails. I think you know you can uh, layer lots of different elements um, in there to create more of a journey. In the same way that um, I think we try to encapsulate that on some level in the wines themselves, but that can be expanded outward by pulling elements out uh, that you might see um, by w- with different ingredients. Uh, 
you know, I know that we use a lot of uh, dry sherry a lot in our cocktails because I think it can can bring the acid out of the the fruit of the the wine um, and uh, um, and also be a nice foil to some of that sweetness uh, that may be there in the the the, the wine itself. And so, like, um, I think there's a lot of ways to go. Is the the, the short <laughs> answer? To right. That. Yeah, that's great. And and I totally didn't let you answer the question, Kelly, about why you like these things like what's and and how you feel about them in relation to terroir i i think you know i think um was it ian was his name yes. you mentioned, yeah i think uh, i think your your comrade out there ian I, I think he has nailed it i think um this is exactly how i describe aromatized wine is i think i've even used the word fingerprint of terroir wow. you, know, you look at, at the landscape and it's not just grapes and while grapes are a great mirror you know fruit can be a great mirror to how did that year manifest? What is the soil like? What is that unique microclimate like? You know, when we really want to taste a place, it has many more plants and many more flavors that just aren't going to come in in the grape. Uh, and I think it's, it's a great way to just in, encounter a place a, as its whole self. Nice. I love that. Now, one thing that you guys know I'm very excited about and curious about is you're working with persimmons, um, mainly honestly, because, well, I love persimmons. I've fallen in love with them. They're an incredible perennial food crop uh, and tree crop in North America. They, you know, we have a native persimmons here and you guys work with some of those. And But also here in my neighborhood in LA, there's just gobs of persimmon trees, fuyu for the most part. And I've often thought about how to use them in wine. And you guys just released or in the process of releasing a sparkling persimmon wine made with um, some a, a blend of persimmons, but a good bit of American native persimmons, as well as some Traminette. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So this is um, this is not our first time working with persimmons. So uh, part of our one of our botanical wines, uh, Nocino Americano, is American persimmon. So we we got our feet wet working with persimmon there. Um, but this is with the first walnut time. too. Did you use walnut? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. It, it, it is a. Um, we call it Nocino Americano because it's sort of modeled on the the, the concept of an Italian Nocino, but um, we aren't using. Um, uh, European walnuts, it's American walnuts, um, and um, the intention is with the Americano name to be both referring to that, but also um, that it's intended to be more sort of an Americano style, um, where you have something that is a little lighter, a little more bitter, um, a, a little more edgy, and um, part of the the edge of that is the the tannin that comes from the um, the wild persimmon wine that is part of the base. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've, we've wanted to work with persimmons uh, in a more standalone context for a long time. And uh, we finally decided to, to pull the trigger. So um, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's mostly American persimmon. Um, and 50% of the American persimmon is wild harvested um, from trees on our site, from trees on uh, neighbors, friends sites, <laughs> family sites. Um, and then the other 50% um, is from our now often mentioned friend, Michael Judd in yeah. Frederick, Maryland who has um, has been growing some cultivars that are a little bit bigger and slightly less tannic. So really, he's he's trying to find a way to really make these um, a, a real part of the American food web again. So um, we have those um, to get the uh, pH and, and just to give us a little liquid to, to work with, we topped that off with Traminet and a few locally grown um, 
I, I want to say it was Fuyu. Yeah, Fuyu persimmons as well, just to give us a little more juice, um, because as, as I don't know if you're familiar with American persimmons, but they are um, not particularly juicy. Yeah. Um, and, uh, when they come in contact um, with water, they're so tannic that um, they, they have the tendency to seize up uh, into very firm uh, balls. So uh, we have to <laughs> we have to um, mash them up and really integrate them with a the liquid and constantly, uh, you know, agitate them, uh, you know, two two or three times a day to to keep that mass from uh, clinging to itself as tannins like to do. Um, but that has uh, really resulted in a very exciting, slightly tannic, very pretty pale sparkling that uh, we hope to release in spring. That seems like there's a great opportunity there if, with those tannins as well, because, you know, this is, I mean, the tannins are great when they're, you know, when they're well integrated, right? It becomes this, you know, like a souffle-like structure. I mean, this is me using terms that, um, what's his name? Uh, Clark Smith. I don't know if you know his book, Postmodern Winemaking, but he talks a lot about how essentially red winemaking is essentially a tannin souffle. And mm -hmm. And it seems like there's some really interesting opportunities there in terms of the, the chemistry and, and the way that you're agitating them as well, which is a form of, yeah, essentially building structure into the wine as while you're trying to avoid it from like just becoming a single like edifice in, in, in that doesn't dissolve in solution. Um, but that sounds really great. So, so what, can you talk me through that process? Like from when, when you pick, and how like all the way to bottle like and you can you can shorthand it and use you know language that like and anybody that's a winemaker would know and assume that we're all yeah. geniuses in the wine. Okay. <laughs> sure. Um yeah, sure. So so when we first started working with persimmon, not not in our sparkling wine, but when we first started working with it, we were actually cooking it, trying to break it down and and free it up and that was a a pain and definitely not scalable. Um, so we um, we take the whole fruit uh, and we remove the uh, caps um, from the fruit, the, the little leafy ends. They, they tend to be quite dry um, and and uh, just not desirable. So we remove those. Um, you couldn't look at them as like what? stems on a grape grape bunch, like you, you know. could. Uh, yeah, you could. I mean, persimmons. I should mention, you know, the wild persimmon. Um, it's really fully ripe uh, essentially after the last frost and it seems like the first. first frost not the last frost thank you thank you don't wait that long um oh goodness um it seems to me that the the cultivars that people are trying to develop ripen a little bit uh, sooner and a, are a little easier but but oftentimes you know by the time you get the fruit um it, it looks a little mangled um, and the, the greenery may or may not be introducing uh, molds or other microbes that I, you, you want, you want to minimize. So I've yeah. removed those and there, there's plenty of tannin and, and interesting flavor to work with in the fruit itself. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Just, just curious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll try it one day <laughs> when we feel safer. Um, so we make our mash. We, um, you know, add the treminette um, just, uh, you know, keep, I don't know what to say there. I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward. We, we make a mash, we add trim in it. Um, frequent agitation. Frequent agitation. I mean, uh, you know. How uh, do you do that? Do you, are you doing punch downs or pump overs or just stirring or? Uh, just just stirring, you know. Um, it, it, it doesn't, I should, yeah, that's, it doesn't really form a solid cap in the way that grapes would, uh, or quite frankly, in the way that working with pawpaws does. You know, the persimmons stay a little more separate and uh, they don't really seem to seal off in quite the same way. So, you know, we're able to just kind of stir and agitate and, and 
you know, turn over those fruits so that they're, they're staying relatively covered in solution for the most part. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we you know we complete our first fermentation um, and uh, tirage is, is very straightforward. Um, we do use um, cane sugar uh, to establish our tirage. Uh, we're hoping to do that with uh, juice if we can um, in the future. Um, but uh, for right now, it's it's cane sugar. Um, on occasion, we'll use honey for such things as well. Local honey, that's highly more desirable. Um, and uh, with this wine, I, I foresee it being for the most part, dry. Um, we'll probably uh, engage with honey in the dosage aspect as well. So really trying to stay as, as local as possible um, in on that end. Amazing. Yeah, it's very straightforward, but sounds like just something beautiful and elegant as well. Have you guys got to taste it? Well, we have not disgorged it yet. Um, so it, okay. it is sitting at the moment. Sure. Are I you going to do any lees aging? You know, probably not with this vintage, uh, honestly. Yeah, I think, uh, and, yeah. yeah, keeping it fresh and, you know, it's, it's a very small batch. Um, and we are, we are wanting to bring it out in spring. I think that that really feels like the right time to, to introduce people to such a, such an entity, uh, from our, uh, from our production side. So I think, you know, for us, it's beneficial, I think, in spring to just release it and give it just give it out at that time. But uh, it's something I'd like to explore, you know, really holding on to bottles and, and seeing how they develop and, and you know, checking them uh, from time to time. Yeah, I, I'd be very curious. I mean, you know, it might be just as good, just a whole different style, or it might be something, you know, transcendent and ethereal and who knows what, you know what I mean? Um, but I do love the idea of being able to taste the fresh fruit and I, I would probably do the same thing you guys are doing and mm-hmm. wouldn't want to wait Anyway, wouldn't want to have the patience. <laughs> it's not one of my virtues. Um, yeah, no, nor is it mine. But it's also, I wonder, um, I, I was going to ask about how, how much you taste the Treminet. Like, is it is it pretty prominent? Do you get, get the lychee and all the other sort of fruity tropicalness of, of Treminet? In this case, I, I actually don't think so. You know, it tends to it tends to lean more in the lemon drop direction um, here, and it's it's pretty subtle. I feel like the persimmon really uh, took the lead, uh, and I I don't know if that's some integration of, of tannin to flavor and, and some kind of binding situation that's going on there. But um, you know, it's it's less on the aromatic side and more on this sort of burly tannin uh, lemon zest situation, which is very very fun. It's very straightforward. Nice, I love that. And thank you for sharing how you do that. That just sounds exciting. <laughs> and and a very similar process to what I do with prickly pears, except I'm, well, actually, yeah, I've done a sparkling version of that as well. But yeah, same chemistry, same sort of issues, pulpiness, high pH, um, f- you know, fun to work with in, in, in other ways. Picking them, I think, is a lot more painful than picking persimmons, but I don't know how <laughs> pick that many persimmons. <laughs> um, but thank you for sharing that. That's great. And and it's just, you know, also partly just sharing how, I mean, I, I just like, I, I, I hope more and more people do this kind of thing, like find these fruits that are unique to them. And if, if not making something solely with them, like incorporating them into a co-ferment, you know, finding a way to make make them work uh, with grapes uh, rather than it be an opposition or, or whatever. We're, we're just getting a lot more diversity into wine, which is exciting to me. And I totally agree. I, I'm, very, um, I'm very excited about seeing a lot of people, especially here in Virginia, like trying to play around with other things. Um, and there seems to be this sort of 
slowly growing sort of counterculture of like it doesn't need to just be one variety in a very terroir driven you know interesting um packaging um uh present pre- presentation we can we can play around with all sorts of different kinds of fruits we can play around with things go fermenting and and see what see what it brings us yeah i love that and i mean you said this this sort of i'm just recalling something that you guys said that we we talked about also about beauty and truth and can you remind me <laughs> what you said about that? What was the, you sounded like, yeah. You know, you had asked us um, in a previous conversation what, uh, if we had some overarching lens with how we decide to approach things and and, and um, when we choose to, to do one thing versus another. And um, the, the phrase that often comes up for us is uh, uh, beauty is truth, uh, that if, um, we are going to make something beautiful that people can connect to and 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 see that it needs to also be honest and forthright with what it is, um, and we need to be just just own whatever choices we are making um, it, along the way. And as long as we are truthful, we we will support that beauty. Yeah, that that is beautiful. Um, and one of the things that you've done in your spare time, if I'm not mistaken, is organize and co. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, last year we we did that. Um, <laughs> um, Can you talk about what that is and and how that went? Absolutely. So it was um, uh, essentially a very large wine tasting um, that we did with collaboration with a winery down in Waynesboro, Virginia, called uh, Commonwealth Crush, um, which just as an aside is a very cool project. They're doing um, a lot of um, custom small crush um, projects um, for people who really don't have necessarily the funds to buy into establishing a winery and want to to do um, some more fun and experimental things. They are, they are a, a large winery who basically rents out their space and knowledge base um, in order to help people get going and, and make um, interesting wines. Um, and they themselves also make a whole bunch of interesting wines, you know, with that, because they have the place to do it. Um, and so we were lucky enough to work with them to try to establish this event where we brought producers together who have a very similar lens um, in trying out to do new and experimental things um, in Virginia. Um, and um, that could be co-fermenting things that people usually don't think about um, uh, co-fermenting that can be working with multiple different fruit sources and, and blending them together. Um, that can be aromatized winemaking, like we engage with a lot uh, and any other sort of on the edge approaches to, to wine and bring them all together for a tasting for, for people to, to see that there is a, a growing um, uh, scene in this way. What is the meaning behind the name and slash co? Sure. So um, it, it, we break it down into two sections, and and co. Um, so the first is wine and, and that really speaks to aromatized wine or, you know, wine that has something else going on, essentially, um, because that's a that's a genre that, you know, in our region, I, I can't speak to others, but I'm sure in other parts of the States, it's, it's really sort of a confusing, strange, secondary product that, you know, a lot of people might pump out to sort of add novelty to their, their wine line, and it's not really taken seriously. And so, you know, wine and uh, what else is, is entering into the equation? And that can also speak to you know, and what beyond grapes, you know, uh, plums, other ferments, it, it's it's always the question of and what else. Uh, and then co 
speaks to co-fermenting. You know, a lot of the local producers that inspire us here are co-fermenting grapes with other things, be them apples or just interesting co-ferments with grapes themselves or, um, you know, apples and apples or grapes and plums. You know, there's a certain magic that happens when you ferment things together. Um, And then, you know, in the more philosophical side, the co speaks to collaboration, Um, coming together, working together and and really trying to build together all skill levels, all styles, just just trying to create something that's more collaborative rather than isolationist. one thing to the name is that you know the and and co um, is sort of something you historically have seen um, after the name of many many companies um, out there is just an and company and and um, I think energetically we really like that um, as part of the, the the whole pitch of the event too is that um, here are all these different um, producers coming together um, and that we are are part of a, a a whole even though we are many different companies. I I really appreciated how much effort you put into marketing that thing. I mean, obviously you benefit from that, but I mean, the idea being that you spent a lot of time featuring on your own, you know, social media and other areas, other people's projects and their work. And, you know, there's, there's something really generous about that, but I, you know, there's something really lovely about that generosity of spirit, but also, you know, I just wondered if you could talk about what are are there deeper values behind that related to community and sustainability that you guys can talk about? Yeah, I think encouraging the public to we ne- we never want our social media and our outreach in any format to solely be about us, only for the purpose of promoting our products and maximizing ourselves. As much as that may help sales and help us survive and eat and you know live, um, the end goal should always in, in sustainability and in just life really you know needs to be based in care, uh, needs to be based in community and in mutuality. And it is a deep value of ours to um, showcase that through action. You know, teach by example. You know, it is. The only way to create sustainable communities and to really create anything that has longevity is to do it in collaboration with others. And so, you know, we are more than happy to showcase other acts of beauty if it enhances the overall culture, the overall the overall web that we're all trying to live and produce and create inside of. Not to mention uh, on top of that, that I felt just super honored to be in the same room with all of these other people. Like like they're making amazing things. Um, You know, I I can't imagine a world in which I wouldn't want to also showcase that as much as I can. Yeah. Um, You know, I think that uh, championing each other is, is the way to, to, to make something that is um, just even more sustainable than, than something that any other one individual can do on their own. And, and, uh, you know, I, why wouldn't we? Yeah. <laughs> is what I say. Yeah, I think our our cultural default it really is rooted in in um, competition, and th- there's there's just no space in sustainability for competition. You know, it's it just creates a sense of you know entrepreneurial scarcity. It creates negativity. It creates an unhealthy environment for individuals to thrive and grow and, and develop community in. You, you you can't develop community in a state of competition. So that just is anathema to everything we are doing. Not to mention, yeah. of course, that the ego of the winemaker is also a, um, an ongoing problem in the wine industry. And I think like, <laughs> there's not there's not a place for that in, in a sustainable system either. Right? Yes. You know, 
um, setting the ego aside is is a is required for a community. Absolutely. What are you saying about my ego? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, anyone in wine knows that a lot of the winemaker's job is being a janitor. So uh, I, I think we can all just honor the fact that it can be taken down a rung or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's great. I I think every winemaker should clean their own barrels and scrub their own <laughs> tanks and <laughs> wash their own carboys uh, at least at least once a season um, or something like that, not to mention everything else. But um, no, that's great. And I, there's a couple questions that I'm, I'm I, I mean, there's one question that I always want to ask, but there's one, a new question that I'm trying to end these interviews with, which is if you were going to play devil's advocate with your own perspectives um, is maybe one way to look at this. Or if there's anything that you, you think is a big question that you really haven't answered yet, what would that be? if you and the devil's advocate thing to finish that thought was like if you were if you were going to argue against anything that you've said so far what do you think is the strongest argument that you could make against any you know pick any anything that you've said like where where might you be wrong i i think i have some initial thoughts and i i get the feeling that andrew is really developing some serious thoughts Uh, (laughs) so um not profitable comes to mind uh not scalable um Mm. not truly sustainable in the long run you know uh inauthentic you know is it is it actually sustainable or is it just not enough uh these are all things that i think you could easily point fingers at what do you think um you know kelly touched on something very early on in our conversation today about um you know the people saying well you know if it's so hard to grow um grapes in Virginia and you have to, you know, grow hybrids and, and, and still use some conventional sprays and, and, and still engage with them, then why are you even growing fruit in Virginia anyway? Yeah. Um, and I think that would be the, something that I think is, it is something that we have to, to contend with and answer. And I, I, I think the thing for me is that people have to see and connect to things in order for them to sustain, you know, if all of our wine production in this country is just relegated to, um, the easiest places to grow things, then that is going to dramatically shift people's understanding of what it means to grow wine and what it means to to for wine to be consumed. And the more people are detached, the 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 more um, the abuses uh, uh, are allowed to continue or or worsen. And I think um, I just I, I think my answer to that is just you don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good, but. Um, I recognize that our our problem is is that it is imperfect. Yeah, and and you don't have to have an answer to these these yeah. <laughs> questions. I, I really appreciate you guys engaging in this openly because it's it's tough. It's sort of like being in an interview, and they they're like, "What is your biggest weakness?" Kind of thing. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I care too much. Um, you know, like, <laughs> no, but I, I the the fact that you guys are willing to to engage with that question uh, says a lot. And, and I, I, I yeah, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. I, um, I, I, and, and I think it's important to say these things. I, I mean, I, I don't think we're being honest unless we do. And I think if we do want to move forward, grappling with the hardest things is, you know, those, those pain points are, are where we have to uh, focus our attention. You know, like it's like we can continue to do the same stuff and say the same things but until we really look turn up you know that laser focus back onto our our our, our pressure points um there's gonna you know we, we won't move forward really yeah. so i appreciate that and then 
Did, did, did you have anything to add at all, Kelly? Or no, I, I think that's really the heart of it. You know, um, before we started this interview, Andrew and I were actually talking about this. And I, I know I mentioned responsibility um, earlier on in the conversation, but um, we actually added a little nuance between ourselves to that uh, in, in calling this sort of reasonable responsibility, um, really doing as much as you can with what you have, you know, as who you are. Um, and that may look very imperfect or even very, very bad to some um, and to others that may be, that may be great. Um, but, you know, I think the philosophy that, that drives us and that I, I really want to champion for, for everyone that we're interacting with, with our wine is to, you know, um, be charmed by sustainability, be charmed by your place and within reasonable responsibility, within your means, within the limits of your life and its stressors and, and all that weighs upon you, do the best that you can do. And I think that's, that's, that is the thing that will make sustainability work for everyone. Yeah. Thanks. Well said. And is there anything that we haven't covered that you wish we had? It's my final question for you. Is it possible to get a bottle of your prickly pear wine on the East Coast? <laughs> <laughs> Not on the East Coast. I mean, I can send it to you. Um, I, I am no, down to like, yeah, yeah. yeah. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wish no I had more of it. I mean, it, it was our bestseller as well. So, I mean, that I feel like says something about the market, at least here in LA too, but maybe mm -hmm. more broadly than that as well. But yeah, mm -hmm. so because of that, it's, I'm almost out, but definitely. And um yeah, and, and how can people find out more about you and get your wine? Sure. So um, our website is uh, artemisia.farm. Um, dot uh, wine? Dot farm. Oh, dot farm. Artemis yeah. Artemisia, and that's A-R-T-E-M-I-S-I-A. Correct. Is that right? Yep. Artemisia um, dot, dot farm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're on all social media channels uh, at artemisia.farm so uh we're, wow. we, we're very redundant and, and very accessible in that way that is really smart actually <laughs> well uh thank you guys so much for doing this i really appreciate your time and and sharing all you know obviously your time is precious with all that you're doing so i really appreciate you sharing it with me yeah absolutely it's this was, thank you this was fantastic I, I think we really both enjoyed your questions thanks well, there you go. Thank you so much for listening. I just wanted to follow up and say, as I've had some time to think about this question of should we even be trying to grow grapes commercially at all in these kinds of climates, it impresses upon me the urgency of the need for grape breeding in the mid-Atlantic region of the U.S., of course, but anywhere where people are trying to do vinifera where it really is a terrible idea, or any grapes where they're extremely difficult and can only be done in a commercial way, viably, sustainably, over a long haul, using chemicals. Currently, it's likely that less than a handful of the most resilient hybrid varieties of grapes can consistently be grown in Virginia with minimal or no sprays commercially. The risks are just too large to make it commercially sustainable. That could mean that grape wine should only be grown in certain areas of the earth. And if you don't live in one of those areas, make wine with another fruit. I mean, to underline that, Kelly and Andrew, of course, make wine from pawpaw and American persimmon. And those thrive without sprays in Virginia. And they're two of our native fruits. And more of those kinds of wines actually sound like a delicious idea to me. But it could also mean we 
should start breeding new vines that are adapted to where we live. We should all start doing that wherever we are. And we should start fast because grape breeding takes years, like decades sometimes. So there you go. <laughs> Those are my thoughts. I hope as you plan your own farm, you consider putting breeding as part of your farm chores. <laughs> and that sounds really funny. I mean, grape breeding or whatever kind of crop you're growing, uh, breeding <laughs> as one of your farm chores. Thanks and talk to you next time.